Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's podcast episode is all about gluten-free diets and celiac disease. I am honored to welcome our special guest, Dr. Kim Faulkner-Hock, who is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian with more than 25 years of experience with celiac disease. Kim completed her PhD in celiac disease and the gluten-free diet in 2004. She was part of the original working party defining the low gluten and gluten-free food standards and was a consultant dietitian to Celiac Australia for a number of years. An important focus for Kim is educating the public and health professionals about celiac disease and gluten-free living. Her website is called Gluten-Free Nutrition and she posts on Instagram under the handle at gluten.free.dietitian. In today's episode, Kim and I discuss what celiac disease is and how it's diagnosed. We discuss red flags, risk factors, whether gluten is inflammatory or not, long-term risks of non-compliance to a gluten-free diet, the level of gluten-free considered safe in Australia and the rest of the world, accidental gluten ingestion, the controversial topic of gluten-free oats, medications for celiacs, and also gluten-free beauty products. Be sure to share this episode with friends or family who may need to hear it, and please, it would mean the world to us if you left us a positive rating or review in the Purple Apple Podcast app. Now, let's jump into the episode today with Kim. Welcome to the podcast, Kim. We are very excited to have you on today chatting all about celiac disease and gluten-free diets. Well, thank you, Leanne, for inviting me to share this discussion with you on celiac disease. It's quite exciting. Yeah, and you're really what I would call a guru in this area. So I'm very honoured that you've you've joined us on the podcast today to spread all of your your knowledge with our listeners. Thank you. (laughs) So to start us off, Kim, can you let our listeners know a little bit about yourself um, and how you came to specialise in this field of, you know, celiac disease and gluten-free diets? my interest in this area really was influenced by my mother. That's how I got to be a dietitian, let's say, in the area of food. Um, but when I was a dietitian, I then worked at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and I worked in the allergy unit there and we see a lot of people who have uh, food intolerances. And I was just fortunate enough that a research project came along um, while I was there and it turned into a PhD project for me. And we had, you know, two sort of streams. We had celiac disease and continuing symptoms with the thought that because these people had been gluten-free for quite some time um, that perhaps there were some non-gluten reasons for their symptoms. And um, we also segued into another study while we were doing that, looking at really, really, really tiny amounts of gluten because the food standards in Australia were changing right at that time. So we tried to capture it. And so I talk about this as the gluten minutiae. And so that's what I'm passionate about is the story on the tiny, tiny amounts of gluten. You know, because this disease has far-reaching implications, you know, much more than just what's happening with gut health. And I really love it when people make the change to gluten-free that they can see and they can feel the effects of this diet. So it's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we should start with the basics for our listeners at home. What exactly is celiac disease? So celiac disease, it's 
um, it's changed. You know, we used to think of it as a gut disease, but now we're looking at, at it as a, a multi-organ autoimmune disease where the only current treatment is the gluten-free diet. So gluten is found in uh, wheat, rye and barley. Oats is controversial. We can talk about that later if we wish to. Um <laughs> And this gluten, if people eat it, it actually damages the villi which are in the small bowel. So if people can think about finger-like projections that line their, uh, their, their intestine, so once the food gets through the stomach, it gets into that intestinal area where you've got these finger-like projections. And on that are mechanisms that can absorb the nutrients out of their food. So once it's been absorbed out of their food, it can get into the bloodstream and it can be taken to where it's needed in the body. With people that have celiac disease, it's these finger-like projections, the villi, that are damaged. They're blunted or they're flattened, and so they lose the ability to absorb the nutrients. And so this ends up affecting long-term health. You know, so sometimes it'll show up as anemia and um, osteoporosis. You know, sort of commonly. So although it does damage the gut, we've got about you know fifty percent of people who are diagnosed with celiac disease who have those typical gut symptoms, but about 50% or more these days actually have symptoms that have nothing to do with the gut at all. You know, it could be headaches and brain fog. And there's about 20% of people who actually don't think they've got any symptoms. So, you know, they might be the ones that have osteoporosis. Um, you know, there could be, you know, issues with fertility. So early diagnosis is crucial to try to prevent that malabsorption of nutrients. So Doctors of many specialties actually are involved in suspecting that celiac disease might be there and then you know, ask for it to be tested for. Absolutely. And that probably leads to my next question where when we think about testing, um, what is the diagnosis for celiac disease? Because I know we can do simple things like gene tests, but from my understanding, it really is that diagnosis from a biopsy um, of your small bowel that's really needed for that, um, I guess, diagnosis of celiac disease. Is that correct? So yes, you've mentioned a few things there. There is a, a dominance of two types of genes that are seen in people with celiac disease. You know, so the official figure is 99.6% of people have those genes. So we use the gene test to rule out celiac disease mm -hmm. because 30 to 40% of the world have those genes, but only 3% of people with those genes go on to develop celiac disease. So the, the, the genetic screen can help us put you into a suspect group but alone does not mean you have it. So the number one thing that to, to actually diagnose it is people must be eating gluten mm -hmm. and they must be eating significant amounts of wheat, not just a little bit of chocolate or a beer every now and then. Mm -hmm. So if people really aren't eating, you know, at least two slices of bread every single day for about six weeks around their diagnoses, then we tell them to do that. So we call that gluten loading and we want them to specifically go out and eat enough wheat so that we can say, you know, most likely now that's enough wheat to make these tests positive because we're looking for specific blood antibodies to be raised. So we call this a blood screening test and that's the first thing that the GP will do is this screening test. If everything's in the normal range, great, we go no further. If things are not in the normal range, then um, ideally we have a small bowel biopsy which will take a look at those finger-like projections and tell you if they're blunted or flat. But 
these days it's it's changed just in very recent you know year or so especially with COVID where we can't diagnose quite so many people with biopsy and there's now regulations that if your blood results fulfill specific requirements and are very very high you could diagnose without the biopsy but the biopsy is still considered to be a gold standard and it actually gives you a picture of what's happening in the gut. Mm, and you mentioned an important point in that if we're simply not eating enough gluten, um, it will almost give us what you would call like a false positive. So you could come back like it, everything looks okay, but yeah, actually you could have celiac disease. You're just not eating enough to elicit that inflammatory response from your small bowel. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So if, you know, gluten runs the disease. So if you've taken gluten out of your diet, that's what we do to get over the or to keep the disease in control. Um, so if there hasn't been enough, we might not actually diagnose it. And because celiac disease is really about really, really tiny amounts of gluten, we really need to know, can you have it or can't you have it? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that because we have to have a certain amount, it's sort of the equivalent of about two slices of bread every day for six weeks. What if somebody is so sick or so unwell, um, and I've met clients who just the tiniest crumb of gluten can put them in bed for days or give them debilitating headaches. What do you suggest if they're just simply not able to eat the required amount for six weeks? Is that enough to sort of say, well, obviously you're having this huge reaction and um, we can do some blood tests and, and that would be enough? Or would you still recommend they try to do that for the six weeks with the biopsy it really needs to be the six weeks because one mouthful of, of wheat doesn't automatically run through and and um, slough off all the villi it is a process uh, that takes time to happen and so you need that at least you know that minimum of six weeks in order to have enough damage so that when they go in and do a small bowel biopsy they they'll be able to find it um and the, again, with the bloods, they don't all of a sudden rise overnight. It's, it's, it takes time. And the more you have, the more you drive the disease, the more you drive the antibodies to be made. So unfortunately, at this point in time, one of the things we have, we can sometimes suggest is when people eat wheat, um, there can be a few things in wheat that can cause symptoms. So not just your gluten, but there's fructans, there's, um, uh, lectins as amylase trypsin inhibitors as well. But fructans is one thing that we can probably target and say, right, if we give you vital wheat gluten powder, which is the, the gluten protein itself, and you have 12 grams of that a day, it takes away the fructans, which for some people can trigger symptoms. So some people can get through their six weeks by getting their gluten through this vital wheat protein, but certainly not everybody does. Mm -hmm. And there are still people who get just get overwhelmed with symptoms. And if you're overwhelmed with symptoms, unfortunately, we cannot do the proper tests for celiac disease yet. Melbourne, again, they've got research that they're doing, which is incredibly hopeful and exciting that we may be able to do a test without the need to gluten load. Mm. And, you know, whether that's going to come in two years or 10 years, I can't say, but it's in the research stage at the moment and it's looking very promising. Yeah, so, you know, other than that, doctors make um, informed ideas about the presence of celiac disease based on a whole list of presentations that they may have or family history because knowing if you've got it really speaks to how strict that diet needs to be. Mm, absolutely. And that's why it's really important to know. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned that doctors will use sort of a list of criteria. What would some 
I guess I would call red flags if listeners were listening at home. And, you know, I think it's pretty obvious when you're quite symptomatic from a gut health perspective. You know, if you're getting lots of diarrhea or things seem to be going through quickly or you're getting heaps of bloating and gas, um, you know, we most of us would pop to our GP and say, hey, what's going on? But it's those other sort of 20 to 50% you mentioned who are sort of asymptomatic. Um, and it might just be, you know, osteoporosis or some anemia, which isn't routinely picked up in a lot of people. So what would you say would be some red flags outside of the gut health complaints that you would recommend um, our listeners pop off to the GP if they were experiencing? Yeah, I think people are on top of the gastro things. Look, fatigue and lethargy and just generally feeling unwell, you know, people just always put it down to, oh, I'm just really busy. Um, so they're very, very common in the background of celiac disease, especially when that fatigue gets to the point where you can't get out of bed or you get up and you just feel like you've not slept. Um, sometimes people have gone to the doctor and they've in fact had blood tests done. And so their blood tests may be low iron, low folate, low B12, you know, low zinc. So that in themselves are going, right, well, if it's in your diet and you're eating well, why is it low? Let's check the celiac disease. Um, Things that people don't think about as much are the migraines, the headaches, brain fog, you know, anxiety, um, and again, easily broken bones. If you had a simple fall and you think, my gosh, how did that possibly break my bone? That could be a, a clue that you don't have, you're not absorbing your uh, calcium, so you get checked for celiac disease. We're trying to make dentists much more aware of the, the teeth enamel. So you can have... Um, Defects in the teeth enamel, which can be from other things, uh, but celiac disease is one of the ways that it can show up is, is these stripes that you can get through the teeth. So that can be a clue. Um, on the whole, you know, for um, there can be delayed puberty, um, infertility in both sexes, and there can be multiple miscarriages, uh, early menopause, so that whole sort of uh, thing around hormones, hair loss. And there's this associated disorder called dermatitis herpetiformis, which sometimes is called celiac disease of the skin, which is really itchy, blistery rashes on the elbows, knees, buttocks, sometimes around the hairline and back. So these are, you know, can be non-gastrointestinal suggestions that celiac disease may be present. Wonderful. Yeah. I think you've given our listeners a, a lot of food for thought. Um, because I agree, like it's such a, it's such a, a disease that is, you know, quite simple to sort of see if you're getting the gastro sort of issues. But if you're not, it can, it can really be a long, hard road to get that diagnosis or to sort of even get our, our doctors to, I guess, take it seriously. You know, I've had a lot of clients who say, I go to the doctor, I tell them I have headaches and I have migraines and they tell me to drink more water. So I think it, it's nice to feel empowered as a listener to know to push for more things or to, you know, go and see a different doctor. If you just if you just don't feel right, isn't it? With or without the sort of gastro side of things, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Now, with the celiac disease, obviously you mentioned that a complete gluten-free diet is the only, I guess, cure or management for the condition. Now, if our testing and screening and biopsies and that sort of thing came back negative, um, I have a question for you, which I already know the answer for, but I've seen it a lot promoted online. Is gluten inflammatory to you if you don't have diagnosed celiac disease? All right. So the answer to that generally is no, mm -hmm. but yes, it can be in some people. Mm -hmm. and. That's where you can't take the yes side and run with it and say, oh, it's inflammatory or, or you know, in absolutely everybody. So non-celiac gluten-sensitive people do react to wheat. A small portion of them have been shown to have inflammation. Now, when we're talking to wheat, 
then you're saying, all right, well, what is doing the inflaming? And there's different groups around the world. So it's not the fructans, but amylase trypsin inhibitors, lectins and gluten has been shown to be inflammatory in certain subgroup conditions um, in, you know, people that have these intolerances. So again, inflammatory is not inflammatory of the villi. It is not damaging the villi. Mm -hmm. So don't misunderstand that. Um, so there is no malabsorption of nutrients occurring in these people. Taking the wheat away may decrease some of their inflammation and may make some of their symptoms better, but it's going to have absolutely no effect on the absorption of their nutrients. That's all going to be good. So the degree that they would you know, avoid wheat is different to somebody with celiac disease because they're, they're doing it to help their symptoms. Mm -hmm. So that might be inflammatory it's not I guess damaging from a nutrient and a deficiency perspective long term exactly. is that right that's exactly yeah. right yeah so small amounts may be completely okay for these people that sort of accidental ingestion a little bit here and there would be fine yes. but for somebody with celiac disease we'd, we'd say no to that exactly because it could potentially damage the villi which then has the malabsorption effect in celiac disease. Yeah. And in celiac disease, besides the malabsorption, what are some of the other risks long-term of not being compliant? Because I hear you mention um, fertility is one of those long-term osteoporosis. So for those, I guess, who need to have a strict gluten-free diet with diagnosed celiac disease, what are the risks that we're looking at long-term? Because I know that lymphoma is, is a big one as well, isn't it? Uh, yes, it could be. So we have mentioned some of them, you know, things like um, – bone health, osteoporosis, the fertility. Um, heart health is something that, that is not, not often talked about. Again, it's the same idea that there could be, in again, a subset of people with celiac disease, not across the board, everybody, where there's a little bit more inflammation in their heart. So again, if someone's been undiagnosed and they're presenting with, with heart issues, that might be the first way that celiac disease, you know, is, is seen. So, um, another one that, it could be um, early onset dementia. But given that, that we don't really know a lot about dementia, you wouldn't necessarily automatically think of celiac disease if, if that hadn't been a part of the diagnosis prior to that. Um, people who don't go on a gluten-free diet have more of a chance of developing multiple autoimmune diseases. Um, and so establishing a gluten-free diet younger that group of people don't seem to develop as many associated autoimmune diseases, you know. So you've got the, you know, the the, the vitiligo, the thyroid disease, Addison's disease, uh, lupus. You know, there's there's a variety of them. You did mention cancers of the gastrointestinal tract. So again, there is a small risk, um, not a, a huge risk, uh, if you don't go gluten free, that this could happen. So for some people, this could be how they present with celiac disease. And so that's the, the, the first time it's been diagnosed. So they haven't had other symptoms and now they've got the small bowel lymphoma. So while we're kind of looking at this and it's a bit doomy and gloomy, I thought, why don't we look at the mortality statistics and sort of put some of this into perspective? Sure. Because they do actually say that there is a, um, a slightly higher risk if you've got celiac disease that um, you don't live as long as other people. So when you're looking at a whole group and comparing them to a whole group of people um, who don't have celiac disease. But if we try to, to draw it out, people who may present, say, for the first time that they've never been diagnosed with celiac disease and they've presented, presented with cancer of the gastrointestinal tract, 
um, they may die within five years of that presentation. People who may present for the very first time with a heart disease are more likely to have an issue with their heart at a, a much younger age and so, you know, die a little bit sooner than expected. So if you take out the people who presented with dire um, conditions at the diagnosis of celiac disease and you say, right, um, those who have died within the first five years or 10 years, if you take them out of the group, everybody else with celiac disease who's gone on to a gluten-free diet can live as long as the general population. And what you may be more susceptible is um, death from heart disease associated condition. And some of that may be the inflammation that is involved with the celiac disease side of it. But a lot of that they're focusing on is your choices of gluten-free foods. Mm. So it's really important that you talk to somebody to know what are the nutrients at risk now that you need to eat gluten-free long-term so that the diet can be better and certainly more heart healthy. Mm, absolutely. So it's more those lifestyle associations um, with, I guess, the choices of our gluten-free foods, like packaged foods and that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and whole grain gluten-free fibres and things. Um, I guess my next question is, you mentioned, you know, we keep mentioning the the long term, the only solution is a strict gluten-free diet. So I guess for those people that don't have the physical effects, so they go, you know, I eat gluten and I feel fine. Like I don't really understand. It's hard for those people I can appreciate to, to need to be strict gluten-free long-term because they're not experiencing the physical ramifications of that. Um, can we have a little bit of a chat about, I guess, just the importance of being compliant long-term regardless if they're symptomatic or not? Because I used to see a lot of clients um, when I used to work at the hospital who, you know, they're like, I eat a meat pie and I'm fine. Or I have a sandwich every day and I have no symptoms. Like my only concern is that I have low iron and I just, you know, I get an iron infusion and I'm fine. So I think there's a little bit of, I mean, I think it's, it's easy to appreciate when you get really unwell from gluten to, to cut it out because you feel better. But when you don't have those physical, I guess, implications and you don't feel unwell, it is difficult to sort of get your head around the fact that you need to cut these things out long-term, isn't it? When it, you don't feel like it's physically affecting your body. Yeah. Look, it is a really good question. I, I'm not sure that I've got an answer exactly for it, but definitely if you have symptoms, it's a double-edged sword. The research does definitely show those who have more symptoms are better at reading food labels, are better at asking about cross-contact in order to protect themselves from getting those symptoms. And the the people who don't might not be quite as good as, as you know, asking all of those sorts of questions. So it does come back to per personality type how people want to live their lives. Are you a risk taker? Are you not a risk taker? But also there is this huge pressure of a gluten-free diet. You know, it's really depressing to say that the total burden and the responsibility of this diet is up to you. It sits on your shoulders and you can never eat all of that favourite food that everybody's put on the table in front of you. You just have to sit there and not touch it and we're just going to you know, be in front of you downing it. And go, oh, that's absolutely wonderful. So we have to not just tell people what it's going to do to them. Definitely they have to hear that at some point, but I have some of these clients too and I had one who said to me, look, I know what it's going to do to me but it's just so hard to sit there and not eat it. So continually just telling them what is going to happen isn't useful. So I've come at it now that we need to try to do something a bit more practical. Mm -hmm. So we need to encourage them to involve family and friends in supporting them, understanding 
how difficult this is to them, what it does to them. So they need to help not put the temptations in their pathway so that they can um, all together help this person instead of it just being you by yourself, you just have to monitor everything. Yeah, I agree. And it is just that huge, I guess, social pressure and aspect where you really do feel like you're the only one kind of missing out where it, I, can, I can see why people go, oh, well, I'll just have a little bit, it's fine, or I'll just, you know, I'm, it won't make me sick, I'll just be fine this time and then I'll sort of avoid it the next time. I, I can see how that happens. And I think you're right, creating that social structure and support is so incredibly important for that change long term, isn't it? It is. I mean, definitely they need to know what the options are, but then you need to help with something practical to to help them with it. Yeah, and I feel like we've come a really long way in terms of gluten-free options, not only just in supermarkets and in stores, but also in terms of all the recipes that are online these days. This is some really tasty options, um, you know, that are strictly gluten-free, which I feel like is wonderful compared to, you know, sort of 10 years ago when I first started sort of seeing a lot of the celiac clients. There weren't a, weren't a lot of options available to them, were there? <laughs> no, that you're exactly right. There's, there's so many, many more options out there today. And there's a real focus now on, you know, and fibre and more health. Yeah, which is wonderful, yeah. yeah. And in Australia, um, I've, I've read a lot um, that, you know, we are one of the strictest countries in the world in terms of what we consider our level of gluten-free. Um, can we discuss, I guess, the food standards or the levels of gluten-free throughout the world? Um, and if people need to be, I guess, concerned if they're travelling or if they're, you know, going from country to country because our levels are a little bit different to some other parts of the world? Yeah. No, you, look, you are right. They're, the gluten-free standards, do differ around the world. There is an international standard, it's called the Codex Alimentarius, and a lot of countries have adopted that and or they've taken it as a, a mainstay and then they add their own things. So the standards are all slightly different but have a commonality. So 20 parts per million and allowed to eat gluten-free oats is what we see in Europe, America and Canada and pr presumably most places. Argentina has said to call something gluten-free, it's got to be less than 10 parts per million and it can't have oats. And Australia, New Zealand and Chile, as far as I'm aware, um, say that gluten-free is no detectable gluten, which is three parts per million, and we um, don't allow the oats. Now, these numbers weren't pulled out of the sky. You know, the international food standards are based on research over many years um, that suggests that most people with celiac disease can actually tolerate 10 milligrams of gluten per day and not have villi damage or symptoms. Now, this is tiny. It's tiny, tiny, tiny. So, you know, don't jump on me and say, oh, what can I eat? You can't eat deliberately anything. Mm -hmm. This is all about what is in that background of contamination or cross-contact um, that occurs. Um, it, it's purely that level. To give you an example, you know, one mouthful of bread is something like 500 milligrams. I'm only talking 10, mm. right? So, you know, a piece of bread could be up to 2,500 milligrams. You know, a person who's not eating wheat could have 14,000 milligrams, you know, in a day. So we're talking 10. Um, so I teach my clients that 20 parts per million is the average experience for people with celiac disease that keeps the majority of people safe. And that's what the international standard is based on. Um, in Australia, we have tended to say, look, if, if somebody is affected by it, then we're not going to put it into a food standard that everybody is going to have. So, you know, 
Internationally, you start, you feed the majority. And then if you are one of the unfortunate, more sensitive people, you may need to, to make other decisions. So I, I teach clients that it's quite safe to travel, um, you know, and, and eat the foods that you have overseas. You know, just because it's labeled, just because you can, um, have up to 20 parts per million when you're traveling overseas in a food lab or gluten-free doesn't mean that 20 parts per million is actually in that food. Mm-hmm. There was a research that came out of um, Europe that, you know, obviously they didn't test every single product, but of the test of the products that they tested that were labeled gluten-free, um, 95% of them could have been sold here in Australia under Australian law. So, you know, a lot of them doesn't they don't, they don't actually have up to 20 parts per million in them um, and if somebody feels that they are sensitive to these particular products what I try to suggest for them to do is to look at what we've got in the Australian market if an international product is selling here in Australia and it's labeled gluten-free it has to fulfill our standard so it has to have no detectable gluten in it so let's just take a big international company like Shars. Um, we find them here, we find them in America, you find them in Europe. Now, they're not going to have two factories, one in Europe to produce to 10 parts per million and one in Europe to produce to, you know, detectable gluten. They're going to have one factory. So if it can be sold in Australia as no detectable gluten, around the world it's going to contain no detectable gluten. So if people are concerned, I say look at your products in the Australian supermarket that are international in origin. Mm-hmm. and try and find those ones, you know, when you're travelling. And then obviously Celiac Australia can give a lot of advice as well about products and um, and reading labels and, you know, uh, um, translation cards and things that you can get from them if, if you are travelling. But that is one of the things I would, would suggest. Yeah, wonderful advice and, and good recommendations here. Like Australia is a wonderful resource. Um, yeah. um, just, you know, in terms of early diagnosis, continued education, but also, as you mentioned, for traveling as well, they do have a lot of tools and tips as well, even just eating out like socially within Australia as well, don't they? They've yes. got a lot of great tips there. Yeah, they do. Now, we've mentioned oats a couple of times and oats or we should say, you know, uncontaminated gluten-free oats um, and celiac disease are are quite a controversial topic, particularly around the world. And as we said, Australians sort of say no to to oats, even gluten-free oats. Um, For those, I guess, diagnosed with celiac disease, what is the controversial and what is the difference worldwide? And are Australians diagnosed with celiac disease able to have the uncontaminated gluten-free oats? Um, is there a way that we can possibly include this in our diet? Okay. Uh, yes, because oats are great fibres. Yes. <laughs> um, look, the controversy comes down to gluten. So when we say gluten, you know, we, we use it as if it is one entity, mm-hmm. but gluten is different. So again, um, let's think about um, you've got five different necklaces here in front of you, and you know, they've all they're all beads. So let's say one necklace is predominantly red and yellow beads. One is predominantly blue and green beads. One has red, yellow, and blue in equal colours or in equal quantities. So we could look at all of these and imagine them as chemical molecules. And so the gluten in one. The gluten in wheat, rye and barley would have very similar beading colours and proportions. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at the gluten that is in oats, um, it's very, very different. So they have um, only really small quantities of two particular uh, sort of amino acids that 
are known to cause the celiac damage. And because they don't have much of it, the official figure on oat studies is that only um, 5 to 8% of people with celiac disease actually react to oats. So, again, the international perspective is the majority are fine. So the majority of people will have oats. Now, it's not just oats that are normally grown, all right? Oats that are normally grown, they're grown as a rotational crop. Six months of the year in the soil is um, either uh, wheat or uh, barley predominantly, and the other six months is the oats, which means when they're growing the oats, a few little wheat shoots might come up in amongst the oats. So the oats are contaminated. So what designates a gluten-free oat is the exact same oat, but the grower has to grow it under specific conditions. So he must not have grown wheat, rye or barley for at least two years in his field to get rid of these spontaneous little crops that come up. Mm -hmm. You have to buy 100% oat seed because usual oat seeds contaminated. Your crop on the rotational side of the the year has to be gluten-free. And you have to have fresh reaping and storage areas that haven't been contaminated with wheat, rye or barley. So when they apply the test to say that the oats are gluten-free, it's not saying oats are gluten-free like rice is gluten-free. Mm-hmm. This test is saying that there is no contaminant wheat, rye or barley grains that have been detected in your barrel of, of oat grains. And so that specific production is what internationally they call a gluten-free oat and in Australia we call a wheat-free oat. And, you know, that that comes down to that argy-bargy about because the gluten affects 5 to 8% of people, we're not saying it's gluten-free, but it's acknowledged that it um, is handled by the majority of people. So, again, Australia is not going to put it into the food uh, standards to say that everybody can eat the oats if we know that we that five to eight percent of people can't. So it can't be in foods labelled gluten free, but there's nothing that says that you can't go to your gastroenterologist and say I want to explore uncontaminated or wheat free oats, and then the gastroenterologists. You now we don't have a standard practice in Australia, so the gastroenterologist will say this is what I want you to do, how long I want you to eat it, this is when I want to do a biopsy. So we tend to keep it out when people are newly diagnosed, get some recovery going, and then if you want to test it, it can be tested and then you can measure if there's any effect from it. So I know oats is a a very long explanation, but it kind of needs to be so you can get the picture of what's going on. I love that. And people can talk to their gastros. 100%, yeah. Don't do it yourself. You've got to talk to the gastro because you have to have a biopsy. You cannot have a blood test and test the effectiveness of oats. It can only be done by biopsy. Yeah, and sadly for some it can be um, quite an expensive option as well because it generally means through a private gastroenterologist you need, you know, generally two biopsies, one at the beginning to show that we don't have the inflammation to begin with and then one after the the formal oat challenge with the, you know, the uncontaminated wheat-free oats and then to show that you've been eating that for a while and, again, you don't have that inflammation. So we used to have the conversations a lot with a lot of the the public health patients and, unfortunately, um, I guess the biggest barrier for them was, was that money side of things. But just, you know, being able to eat oats and have a nice warming bowl of porridge in winter is such a wonderful thing for for a lot with diagnosed elect disease if they don't react to it, isn't it? There's a group in Melbourne that are um, researching this 
further and, you know, we're sort of hoping soon that there will be um, uh, a conclusion that will come out and we're all interested to see where that conclusion may lead. Yes, definitely, yeah. But as we did say, Australia does have some of sort of the strictest standards and if you're listening and you're, you're in America and you're in Europe, um, generally your guidelines can say you can happily eat the, the uncontaminated gluten-free oats. So yes. it really does depend on, I guess, where you're living in terms of what the guidelines say, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. You get diagnosed in the UK, you eat oats, you come back to Australia and you go, ah, where, where can I source my oats? And so I have clients like that who then continue to buy them in from overseas because they're used to eating them. Yeah, yeah. And then we've mentioned a couple of times um, this cross-contamination or what we might call sort of that accidental um, ingestion of gluten. So, you know, a lot of people mention, um, you know, being really careful. And I very much know we used to educate um, our clients at the hospital, be very careful with things like toasters, um, the butter container, the, the Vegemite jar, that sort of thing. Because if people are, you know, using their knife in it and then they're putting it on wheat toast and dipping it back in again, it could contain cross-contamination. So we never want to, you know, scare people, but we want to educate them. So what do you feel like are the biggest contributors to that accidental gluten ingestion or that sort of accidental cross-contamination you know that's it's a it's an interesting question because it can be there's a lot of things that are out there that 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 could potentially be a problem I'll start with some of the things that that you um um sort of were talking about um if I want to talk about um the the toasters um there is research that's out there at the moment which has only look the the whole issue with toasters and a lot of this has come from people who have celiac disease searching for where gluten may come you know contact their gluten-free food and trying just to minimize those points so there's really only one research project that's been done on toasters on toasters and it was done on 40 pieces of bread and in a pop-up toaster it, it showed that there was no cross contact and so um it showed that there was a bit of cross-contact but still within international gluten-free standards in a rolling toaster when it fell onto wheat crumbs. But, again, many of them didn't come up with cross-contact. So um, where you want to put the toaster is interesting and it comes down to people's personalities and I find most people still want to use a toasty bag because it's something that they do every day and it, it makes them feel safer and there's a lot to say for just that mental side of, of feeling safe. Um, the double dipping is definitely open to more uh, cross-contact because you've got little grains of, of bread through your butter and you just do one swipe of the knife through. You could hit those 10 milligrams that I was talking about before just from crumbs in your spreads and, and in your butters. Um, with oils, there has been a 2021 pilot study done which has looked at uh, a gluten-free chips being cooked in oil that also cooked wheat foods. And again, we've been looking for a study like this for such a long time because there's so much controversy about the oils. And again, they did 20 lots of product within the oils across 10 different venues. And 55% of the time there was no detectable gluten. 75% of the time there was less than 20 parts per million of gluten. And so 25% of the, the, the products had between 30 and 270 parts per million of pollution. So no, you can't say they're safe, um, but you can't say they're always unsafe. But how do you know when you're there staring at the, the, the venue that that is cooking it? So you have to go with the safe options. But what I think is where we find bigger 
quantities of gluten is when actual wheat flour is hidden in something that's unexpected. So you've gone to get grilled fish, but it's been dipped in flour. And because you don't do it at home, you forget that that's what people do, uh, you know, if, you, if you've gone out somewhere. So you've got flour, actual flour, that's going to give you a lot of gluten. Flour can also be dipped on wedged potatoes before they get deep fried and that helps to crisp it up. Doesn't seem to happen on fries, but potato wedges is where that could be. Flour is used as a binder in sausages and, you know, breadcrumbs or the chewy gluten itself, that, that chewy gluten protein can go into crab sticks and crab sticks are, you know, crab is expensive. And so you can stretch it out by putting wheat in, which will soak up the flavour and mimic the texture. Then, you know, that's, that's what manufacturers do. So they're the places that you get much more than just cross contact. You actually get a whammy of wheat flour um, and large amounts of gluten coming in. And, and that's where it's particularly difficult. And what would you say about um, bakeries? Because I know that, you know, again, um, in the you know the last five, 10 years, um, bakeries and that sort of thing, cafes have got a lot better at having gluten-free cake options and that sort of thing. But I routinely see the gluten-free cake sitting right next to the normal gluten-containing cakes. And when the staff go to grab them, they're using the exact same pairs of tongs. Is that an issue? Should we be avoiding things like that if they're picking up the wheat-containing cake with the same tongs that they're picking up the gluten-free cake and they're sitting right next to each other? Look, ideally the staff should be trained, you know, things should be separated and the, the utensil should be separated so that you you don't get those wheat crumbs because that's a bit like the butter. Then you've got wheat crumbs that have come into that gluten-free food and the, the, that little bit of unintentional gluten because it's um, wheat, which is very dense in gluten, is going to supply supply. Uh, supply um, you know, a, a quantity of gluten. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's about educating um, our listeners with diagnosed celiac disease and their families and friends just to have that understanding of even, I guess, educating some of the cafes and the shops in terms of what um, what they should be doing. And I, from memory, I think Celiac Australia used to do training with, with cafes. Is that still a thing? Does that Celiac Australia does have a whole um, large catering training um, package so that you you know you can get the package and you can apply it to your your venue mm. um, just as training. But Celiac Australia um, also has a logo that if people have undergone the, the the training, there's a logo that they put in the front window to say that you know to to let people know that they have been trained and therefore should be you know safe for people with celiac disease. They they they've been told these small details of what you were just talking about with tongs and oils and things like that. Yeah, wonderful. So if a restaurant or cafe is displaying that um, they've had that training from Celiac Australia, that's a, a safer bet, I guess, in terms of eating yes. out or socialising for for those with celiac disease. Definitely, yes. Mm, wonderful. And I do remember there was a really promising product. Um, again, I was at the hospital, it's been four or five years since I worked in the gastro clinic, and there was a product called GluteGuard, um, and it essentially was something that people could take if they had accidentally you know, eaten something um, that they didn't realise had sort of gluten in it or they got halfway through it and thought, oh my goodness, I didn't, I didn't check the us. And it was essentially supposed to, I guess, minimize the amount of gluten absorbed, but there just wasn't the research or the studies behind it to support it. Have you heard of that product? And is there anything on the market similar to that? If we accidentally did have some gluten ingestion, is it just kind of, there's not much we can do. It's sort of um, just bad luck, or is there anything we can do to sort of counteract how much is absorbed? <laughs> okay. Well, on, on that with GluteGuard, um, look, I am actually on the, um, um, 
medical advisory committee for that product with Glutagen, the, the company that makes GlutGuard. So I have been um, really trying to make people understand the use of GlutGuard, you know, since about 2017. Um, when it did first hit the market, how to use it was misunderstood. I mean, absolutely everybody wants to be able to eat a wheat product and just take a tablet and everything's going to be fine. And so everyone's mind just went, oh, this is what it is and this is what we did. And that's not what the intention of the product was. Mm -hmm. uh, there are products out there that are saying that this is what you can do. Uh, you know, there are, you know, a variety. We don't have too many of them here in Australia, but I know in America, you know, they gluten-ease, gluten-cutter, they, they've got quite a sort of few over there. Mm. And a lot of those, somebody did a review on those those um, products and some of them don't even contain enzymes. Um, some of them might contain an enzyme that um, might break down, in, uh, it says it breaks down a protein, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to do anything to gluten or they might break down fat or they might break down lactose so they're digestive aids. There's a whole lot out there that might say that that's what they do. Um, but GlutGuard is the only one that is TGA listed in this space of um, being effective against gluten. And it's the only one that can be sold in the quantities of the enzyme that can be um, effective. But it isn't effective in eating a wheat product. Please, please, please take that on board. It is effective for people with celiac disease in dealing with cross-contact. So when you go to a restaurant, I hear over and over again, I um, asked about the fryers, I asked about the tongs, you know, I did everything that I thought that I needed to do in order to make sure that I had a gluten-free meal and I still got sick and felt glutened. So everybody with celiac disease still needs to go through the process of bedding their gluten-free food. We've got research in 20 and 21 actually showing that when you've got your gluten-free food, they sent a quarter of it off in one study to be measured and people ate the other three quarters of it. And the quarter that was sent off did have detectable gluten in some of those um, quantities. So GlutGuard is there to say, right, you've protected yourself as far as you know that you can, but the research is telling us that it's still there. So GlutGuard is coming in as the next layer of defence. Now, you have to take the GlutGuard at the time the meal comes because the enzyme has to be present in the small intestine when the food reaches the small intestine. So there's no point in going home two hours later and going, I'm feeling sick, take a GlutGuard. It's too late. Mm -hmm. So you have to use it to help you eat out socially. Um, and by knowing that it's there in the gut, and that it's designed just for this background, you know, cross-contact gluten, and that it can deal with with that quantity. You know, the, the feedback is certainly, the research has certainly shown far less symptoms, and the feedback I'm getting is um, less anxiety, so, you know, about eating out. And I have some clients that don't know whether the symptoms come on from the sheer anxiety of what's going to be in that food or they were, in fact, gluten. So taking away that anxiety component then um, is, is a big component of what, what GlutGuard does. So very definitely it is something that we should recommend, but um, we need to 
teach people how to use it correctly so it's not misunderstood. Yeah, and I really I really appreciate that, that it's not something we can go, oh, I feel like a toasty or a pie, let's go take some glute guide and I'll be fine. Absolutely because I do not. feel like, as you said, there are a lot of products, particularly in the American market, that almost market themselves as um, you can eat gluten and then take this and you'll be fine. But I feel like because gluten-free is so trendy over there and there's a lot of misconceptions about gluten being inflammatory for everybody, um, you know, those without celiac disease are sort of taking those products and, and thinking that it's going to help them digest it. But as you said, a lot of them don't even have the proper enzymes in them. So I yeah. think of a lot of it is just clever marketing and, you know, a waste of money on, on consumers' behalfs. But it is lovely to know that there is something like GluteGuard that can be really helpful for just, you know, covering all of our bases and still allowing those with celiac disease to eat out and be social because it is such an important um, thing just you know for our mental health as well isn't it very definitely yes and then I guess a, a really a curly question for you which I never really even thought of until somebody asked me in clinic one day um, and the amount of times I put you know lipstick or a gloss on or something and I, I constantly lick my lips do things like lipsticks and um, um, lip balms need to be gluten-free as well is there any research about um, you know just that active eating like beauty products and that sort of thing, being able to sort of soak through the skin. I've seen, I'm, I'm sure I saw a shampoo once being advertised as gluten-free. I've definitely seen a couple of lipsticks and that sort of thing on, on the market um, being advertised as gluten-free. Is that something that is needed for our celiac clients or is that, again, just kind of clever marketing? <laughs> Look, it is clever marketing and I, I'm not going to say it's never needed because when you speak with a whole group of people, you've got people on the average path and you've got people on the sensitive path and people on the not so sensitive path. So depending on where you know you're at, you will interpret what I say, you know, differently. But if I'm going to be looking at the majority of people who have celiac disease, then these, whether those products are gluten free, don't really impact them. I mean, you're not going to swallow your shampoo as it's coming over your face. <laughs> the lipstick is, is one of those things. Let me just address the, the things that are, might be on your skin in order. For things to do damage to the gut, it has to be ingested. So if it's on the skin and you're having a reaction, it really shouldn't be due to the gluten that you're having the reaction. You know, there, there may be other, you might be sensitive to other things that you are not aware that you're sensitive to, but if you're aware you're sensitive to gluten, that's what you're going to. So, you know, sort of on the whole. Um, so in order to do villi damage, it's got to get into the villi. And that's so from a malabsorption damaging from the villi, it's got to be swallowed, which is why there's the focus on lipsticks. And, you know, like the oils, there's very, very few studies done. Again, there has been um, about four lipsticks or lip balms that have been looked into. Does four represent everything? It's like food. You can never say you walk into this restaurant and because the one beside it was gluten-free, this one's going to be. So looking at the lipsticks that they looked at, there wasn't detectable gluten in them. Um, um, does that speak to your lipstick? The, the gluten component that's in them, again, they're highly manufactured, refined products. So how much gluten is actually left in that in ingredient? And then how dense is it within the lipstick? So, I, you know, I did something on Instagram, a bit, a bit of a post on this, and, again, I had to surmise, well, if there's 100 parts per million of gluten in a lipstick, which I'm considering, you know, was probably be a big component in the lipstick, mm. then you'd have to eat three tubes of lipstick to get one milligram of gluten. Again, thinking that 10 milligrams in the background is okay. If you swipe the lipstick across once, 
it would be 0.003 milligrams of gluten. That's, you know, if it was there. So again, for the majority of people, not a problem. If someone's very sensitive and they feel far more comfortable buying something that's gluten-free, mental health is a huge part of the whole thing. So, you know, do it. Mm, absolutely. But I think that's really nice that you were able to put that into perspective. You'd essentially have to eat three tubes of lipstick to really, um, you know, even put yourself at that threshold that we would consider as, um, you know, certified gluten-free almost. <laughs> yes, you know, so when it comes to that first date and do you ask the girl to wipe the lipstick off, which is some <laughs> of the things I see on social media, I think you can come back and think about this. And, you know, if it's going to be by the time she's eating dinner, you might have 0.000001 milligrams of gluten left on the, on the lips. Do you think you're in the super sensitive basket where you might actually get symptoms to that? Certainly from a villi perspective, it would sneak by and and most likely do nothing. Again, you can never say never for 100% of people, mm -hmm. um, but for the majority of people that would do nothing. It would be fine, yeah. Okay, wonderful. Well, you've given us so much, just incredible knowledge today on this podcast, Kim, um, but I'd really like to end on a, on a positive for all our listeners <laughs> with celiac disease. So let's chat food because we all love food and I'm sure all of our listeners do too. You and I certainly do. What are your favorite um, gluten-free foods to consume that are naturally gluten-free and don't cost the earth? Because I feel like a lot of, yes, we have a lot more packaged gluten-free options, but they're quite pricey. So from a, I guess, a naturally gluten-free perspective, what are some of our more affordable options and what are some of your favorite go-to gluten-free foods? So, so I don't give the wrong impression here. I live a gluten-reduced life. I have had uh, three autoimmune uh, conditions sort of diagnosed in my life to date, um, but celiac disease isn't one of them. Um, so, you know, I do start each day with um, a fruit smoothie, which I just absolutely love. Uh, you know, sometimes they can be expensive, but when we you know when the mangoes come out in bulk, when the strawberries go out in bulk, or there's a glut, like there's a glut of strawberries a few weeks ago, I go out and buy heaps of containers and freeze them um, so that, you know, that's that's cheaper than some of those bags. Look, most cheeses, milks and yogurts are gluten-free um, and they make great snacks. They make, you know, great accompaniments in, you know, things like your smoothies and, and um, in-between meal snacks and then you're going to get your added calcium. I've got a cupboard that's full of different sorts of nuts, so lots of jars of nuts. So you don't have to buy nut bars that have been specifically made. You can grab nuts and you can stick them in a, you know, Ziploc bag and you can take them out and, the, and they can be snacks. Um, I'm always trying to encourage people to do uh, not always just your sandwich, but think about a Pokeball style lunch. So again, you've got your canned legumes, which are quite cheap, bags of quinoa and buckwheat and rice boiled up go an awful long way. Um, and, you know, so put them through salad lunches. I'm always doing loads of roast vegetables and, you know, salad greens and herbs and with all of those um, whole grain gluten-free foods in there. I love just fresh freshly boiled cob corn. Um, just, you know, I, I could sit down and eat a lot of those things. And, of course, all your plain meats are going to be gluten-free. It's only a problem if it's marinated or it comes pushed into a square or a round shape. You think, God, oh, what's been added into that to, you know, to make it look like that? Um, can I put a glass of wine on that list even though it's it's a commercial product? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you can, you can. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I would end, end off with um 
that ending on a high. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Kim. Well, thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest and providing us with all of your wisdom. Um, I'd love for you to share your social media pages so our listeners can reach out and give you a follow. And of course, let us know if you're currently taking clients and where people can reach out to you um, and potentially book in for some consultations with you. Well, thank you. Um, so thanks, Leanne. My social media. So um, I have a Instagram and it's called at gluten dot free dot dietitian mm-hmm. um you know i i'm not one of the the youngest on the block so i i i am getting used to instagram there's still a few components to it i, I i've yet to learn but um i'm coming along um i do have linkedin and i um have my website so my website is gluten free nutrition and that's sort of all one word And so I've got a page on there that if people wanted to contact me, that's got my email addresses and, you know, it's it's got the, you know, the Australian phone contacts and for, yeah, for appointments, see people on Tuesdays and Thursdays usually. Wonderful. And are you just seeing clients in Australia or is it worldwide at the moment you're accepting, you know, US referrals on that sort of thing as well? I am accepting referrals. Uh, usually, I, I, I see most people within Australia at this point in time, and and you know I try to contain the, the numbers that I'm seeing at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. So if you guys want to um, follow Kim, I'll make sure that I list um, her socials and her website in the show notes as well. But again, thank you for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm sure that you you definitely provided me with some new knowledge and wisdom, and I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of it as well. So we can't thank you enough for coming on. Well, thank you, Leanne. It's it's been lovely to do this. And- have a bit of a chat with you.